We spend about 8% of our healthcare spending on administrative costs, and other nations spend between 1% and 3%. So if we can cut the prices, which a single-payer system would do, and if we can cut administrative costs, then we will actually lower how much we're spending on healthcare. And Paul Ryan, one of the tax cuts that got passed early on in the Trump administration, what did they say? They said it pays for itself. That was it. That was all they needed to say. It was two sentences and they just moved on. And massive hole in the budget, but don't worry, some point, yada, 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 in the future, it'll pay for itself. I refer often to Martin Luther King in the context of the civil rights movement. He said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and incrementalism. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical, it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. Hey folks, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Our organization, Real Progressives, has been working with the March for Medicare for All Coalition ever since its founding in 2021. In 2022, they organized a weekend educational seminar on the healthcare crisis in the U.S. We took part in several of the panels, and we asked some of our friends to discuss how to pay for Medicare for All. This week's episode, we're bringing you the audio of that event featuring Rowan Gray, Yeva Narcissian, and Jeff Ginter. For those who have yet to be introduced to me in these panels thus far, I'm Luke Parcher. I'm a volunteer. I'm a student activist and political commentator, and I am just honored and humbled to be a part of this summit this weekend. I think this is incredibly important stuff, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. Huge thanks to everybody who helped put this together behind the scenes. There are so many people who worked so hard to make this happen. And once again, I want to plug our sponsors, m for m for all National Single Payer, Real Progressives, Yellow Vest Actions, and Indie Left Media. Huge thanks to everybody who participated in making all of this happen. And with that, we can bring in our panelists for this discussion. Rohan Gray is Assistant Professor of Law at Willamette University, the President of the Modern Money Network, and a Director of the National Jobs for All Network. His research focuses on the law of money and the Internet Society. Jeff Ginter is a longtime activist. He is a certified medical assistant and knows the healthcare system as a worker, consumer, and angry human. And that's a fantastic way to close a bio, by the way, Jeff. That's just wonderful. Some of you may recognize Jeff from the tirade that he put Tom MacArthur through years ago, who was a representative in New York. If you haven't seen that clip, I encourage everybody to look it up. And Yevon Narcissian is Associate Professor of Economics at Franklin and Marshall College and a research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Her research interests include monetary theory, financial instability, and regulation and macroeconomic policy. I want to thank all three of you for taking the time to be here today. So just so the audience knows the way that we're going to format this, we're going to let each of the panelists speak briefly here. We're going to start with Jeff, then we're going to go to Yeva, and then we're going to finish up with Rohan. 
And at the end, we'll have more of a discussion format to build upon the things that the panelists talk about today. So Jeff's going to give us a little bit of an introduction as to why you all should care about the economics here. I know that for a lot of people, they can be passionate about politics, but the economics can seem very dry and boring. I really do sympathize and understand. Jeff's going to help us understand why everybody should at least have a rudimentary understanding of modern monetary theory. And Yeva's going to go into some of the economic details and Rohan will round things out at the end. So Jeff, if you want to dive in. Okay. So... As far as I'm concerned, if you are an activist, if you are a citizen and you have any interest in any kind of policy of any description, it is a requirement that you understand, at least in principle, the differences between the federal government and what their powers and therefore their possibilities are versus a state or a municipality or a corporation or an individual. Individuals, corporations, municipalities, and states, they use currency. They don't create it. They don't control it. They use it. And they use the currency that is created by the monetary sovereign. As Fidel Kaboob was mentioning just previously, they use the currency of the national government. In our case, that's the U.S. dollar. And there is no such thing as scarcity of U.S. dollars. Why is this important? We have needs and desires and wants in this country surrounding healthcare, education, military spending, housing, not to mention, of course, environmental catastrophe looming down upon all of us. And it's going to take not money, but resources to take care of these things. No matter what your policy position is, whatever your goal is, you need the resources to be able to get it done. The more resources you have at your beck and call that are available to you to use, the greater the chance of your success. And the fewer resources you have, the greater the chance of your failure. So if you are financially constrained, if you are an individual and you want to be able to buy a car, you have to be able to earn or borrow that money to be able to do it. The more money you can earn or borrow, the more expensive a car you can have. In other words, in order for you to get the resource, the automobile, you need to worry about your finances first. Same thing with a corporation, same thing with a municipality, same thing with a state. Anything they want to do, from construction to hiring teachers to doing anything that they want, they have a financial consideration in advance of them wishing to be able to accomplish the output, the goal. In order for them to be able to utilize the real resources of technology, of materials, of labor, in order to use these things, they have to be able to purchase them. That means they have financial constraints. To the degree that they could raise the money to be able to buy these things and therefore utilize them, they can accomplish their goal. To the degree that they can't, they will not be able to accomplish their goal. Either that means they'll have to put it aside, such as the state of Vermont trying to do its own single-payer system. They voted for it. They couldn't come up with the money, so they scrapped it. Or they're going to do a smaller version of whatever it is they happen to want to do. But they're always going to have financial constraints first. The federal government, on the other hand, has no purely financial constraints. They are the creators of the currency. They do not 
borrow money to be able to pull it into a central place and then dole it out. They don't need to find the financing first. They want you to think that they do, but they don't. And to the degree that you believe that they do, to the degree that you believe the lies, they are lies. The lies that a federal government is just like a household, only on a larger scale. Every time you hear a politician or a pundit say that the federal government has to tighten its belt, has to get its financial house in order, they are lying to you. There's a possibility that they're just wrong, but the end result is the same. They are wrong and or they are lying to you. The federal government never has to organize the money first. They have to find the resources to be able to get it done. For example, if we want to get single-payer health care, national expanded Medicare for all, everyone in, nobody out, everything covered, top to bottom, womb to tomb, from pharmaceuticals to dental, to vision, to mental health, to end-of-life care, to palliative care, to primary care, to cardiology, everything. We have to make sure that we have the resources to be able to do that. We could lower the age of Medicare from 65, where it is right now, down to zero and have everyone enrolled in Medicare. We can do that now. But if we do that, do we have the real resource capacity to be able to get everyone a doctor who needs to see a doctor, to go to a hospital and find a bed if they need one? to go to a dentist and have a dentist be able to say, here, here's a chair. I'll be with you in a minute. If we don't, then we're going to have people that have cards, that have a card that says they have a right, but there are simply no resources. We don't have enough already. We have people leaving the healthcare profession as it is because of the way it's set up, it's run. People are getting burnt out. I'm getting burnt out. I can't stand working in healthcare anymore. What started off as a sickness of pharmaceutical companies and insurance industries has metastasized into doctors and hospital organizations. Finances don't trickle down, but evil and corruption does. So there's a lot of people that want to leave the healthcare system if they haven't already. So if we gave everyone Medicare for all right now, we're going to have problems because there won't be enough doctors, nurses, hospital beds. People will be flooding existing facilities to be able to find services that they have a right to because they have the card, but they're not going to have enough output. There's not going to be enough places for them to go. But as Fidel Kaboob says, those are producible resources. So if we're going to be responsible, we don't want to hear politicians saying how expensive it is. That's immaterial. What is material is, can we pay for a doctor for everyone that needs one right now. If we can, if there is enough doctors, make the payments. That's not a problem. If we don't have enough, then the question becomes, can we produce them? Can we import doctors from other countries? Can we educate more doctors? Can we build more hospitals? Can we build more clinics? These things are producible. And for as long as we can do that, then we do that. And when we're ready, then everyone gets Medicare for all. And maybe we can reduce the age of Medicare slowly as we bring these resources online. And only when we get to the point of we don't have enough resource capacity, there is no one left to hire. There's no more bricks that can be made. There's no more steel that can be mined and utilized. Only then 
do we have our first real constraint? So if you're saying that Medicare for all, that healthcare is a human right, it cannot be a human right if there are financial restrictions preventing you from accessing healthcare. It can only be a human right when we have the resource capacity to create that system where everyone gets healthcare, equal quality healthcare, the greatest quality the world has ever seen. We give gobs of money to the military so that they can utilize our vast resources. I don't care that they get money. I care that they take all our resources. So if we can do that same sort of thing, throw all kinds of money, whatever it takes to get the resources in place to give the best health care for everyone, then it can be done. And no one will get that if they think the federal government is just like a household. We will never get the Green New Deal. We will never get education for all. We will never get health care for all because we've been trying to do that for the better part of a hundred years. And we hit the same roadblocks every time. We win the moral argument every time. Every time we win the moral argument. But we always fall down on our asses when it comes time to actually implementing it because people who otherwise agree we should have healthcare for everyone. I absolutely agree. And then some politician somewhere says, yeah, but it's going to be really expensive. Do you know how much your taxes are going to have to go up? Oh, well, now suddenly someone who would have been an ally becomes opposition. Even if their only opposition is passive, they won't vote for it. They won't fight for it. That's still opposition. But if everyone who believed in the policy, if everyone who believed in the morality stood up and fought for it, and more and more people will when they stop being afraid of how expensive it is. If they got up in front of politicians and pundits everywhere and said, absolutely not. I do not subscribe to the, I should be afraid of how expensive it's going to be. I know where the dollar comes from. I know who creates it. I know what causes inflation. So you can sit down and shut up, sir. If you're either going to get it done or you're going to get out. If we had people like that, if we had citizenry who was engaged and knowledgeable like that, then nothing would be able to stop us. Nothing. We outnumber them. The only thing we lack is the education. So when Eva starts talking and when Rowan starts talking, please pay attention. There is nothing more important than what they're about to tell you. Because literally, our lives hang in the balance. And I do not use hyperbole. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jeff. And Stephanie Kelton put it as when the MMT coin drops, you realize the suffering is gratuitous. Yes. And I think that's a very key thing for people to understand. I was angry enough about politics. And then once I understood MMT, it was like, oh, this isn't mismanagement and incompetence. This is an out and out choice. It's corruption. Yeah, exactly. And to have that understanding, I think, is incredibly important. And the only blockade that we seem to run into is the how are you going to pay for it question. I appreciate yeah. you breaking that down. With one more aside, when we talk about corruption, I want to just take two seconds and drive this home. Because I know a lot of people, when they talk about this, they say, oh, Medicare for all, it's socialist. This is socialist. This is socialist. 
There is suffering under socialist regimes. There is suffering under capitalist regimes. Suffering does not get alleviated because of the ist you put after the ruling party. It's corruption that's the problem. If you want to have capitalism, fine, but you're going to have to deal with corruption. That's on you. If you want socialism, that's fine, but you're still going to have corruption because the people that populate both socialist and capitalist systems are human and they are prone to corruption. And the only way to get around that is to make sure that there is engaged and educated citizenry. So whatever the citizenry says they want, I want capitalism, great, but there are some things that capitalism cannot touch. Healthcare, infrastructure, education, military, whatever it is you want. If we want democracy, we get to decide what kind of government we want, but we have to be engaged after that happens. We have to be informed. We have to keep them in check or we're not doing our job and you don't deserve what you don't fight for. Absolutely. Well, somewhere Tom MacArthur is shaking in his boots, worried that he's going to have to confront Jeff at some point in the future. <laughs> With that, I'll go ahead and pass things over to Yeva, who's going to explain some of the economics of Medicare for All. So I guess I'll just do a brief intro to MMT, even though Fidel spoke about it and Jeff spoke about it. And I can try to use some of what I do in my classroom with undergraduates to drive the point home. So there are two ways to think about how the government spends the financial way, which is the mainstream approach. Where are you going to find the money to pay for the spending? And then there is the MMT way, which doesn't ask the question of where you're going to find the money. It focuses on what you're spending on and whether there is stuff to buy. That's the important question. We can't find the money, but can we find the stuff to buy or the resources that Jeff was talking about? So the mainstream approach of where we're going to find the money just equates the national government with a household. Of course, everybody knows that households have to find income or borrow to be able to spend. And the same thing is said about the federal government. So we have to raise revenue through taxation. But if we can't do that sufficiently and we're running a deficit, then we have to borrow. We have to issue government bonds. In other words, we're running up the national debt and there is going to be a reckoning time for that. Or worse, we're leaving this debt to our grandchildren who have to pay it. So we're spending today and we're leaving the debt to them to pay. So it doesn't sound like a good scenario either way. So then that limits what your government can supposedly do because there is a limit to government raising taxes and then there is the limit of being able to borrow. Well, MMT reverses that and notes that there is a major difference between a government and a household and that the government is the currency issuer and households are currency users. So users have to find the money before they can spend. And for the currency issuer, it's the exact opposite. You have to spend before you can get the money back. So I have a classroom currency that I use in my classes. I call my currency the Franklins because it's Franklin and Marshall College. And so the first day of class, I walk in and I tell my students that they now owe me a tax of 25 Franklins. And of course, they then wonder how they're going to pay this tax and the taxes basically for their participation. And I tell them that they have to participate. They have to basically work for me, the government, and they have to sell services to me. So attend lectures or movie showings, et cetera. And they will be earning those Franklins along the way. And at the end of the semester, they can pay them. If I insist on that first day that they have to pay their taxes that day, none of them can do it because they don't have the Franklins to pay their taxes. So I cannot collect those taxes the first day of class. 
I have to first spend them. So I have to buy the services from my students and I have to spend those Franklins into existence before I can then collect them at the end of the semester. So this shows the important point that the issuer of the currency has to spend that currency into existence before they can collect it in the form of taxes. And so spending has to come before taxes. So for me, as the issuer of Franklin's, of course, there is no limit to how many I can issue as long as I don't promise to convert them into dollars or something else. And the same is true for our federal government. There is no limit financially. There is, however, the limit with real resources, which is what both Fidel and Jeff were talking about. There is a limited amount of stuff at any point in time that we can buy. So if the government wants to buy more than what's left over after what the private sector wants to buy, then that can lead to inflationary pressures that the government can always outcompete the private sector precisely because they don't have financial constraints. So they can always pay a higher price and that way they can get hold of those real resources at the expense of the private sector. And there are situations when this might be justified. You can think of a war, for instance. Of course, we did that during World War II with rationing and price controls and a whole host of other measures. You could also argue that trying to fight climate change could be a good reason to justify those kinds of resource shifts. But that's not really the norm for our economy. Usually there are unemployed resources left over. Capacity is not fully utilized. And of course, we always have even best of times, about 4% unemployment, and that's the official unemployment rate, which can understate the actual employment situation. So resources are usually available. We usually leave them underemployed rather than overemployed. We don't usually hit that constraint that Fidel was talking about. And of course, that constraint is not fixed. We can, through investments, we can expand that as well. But there is an important role for taxes to play in situations where we do hit that limit or we're close to it. Taxation can withdraw purchasing power from the economy, thus creating room for the government to try to get access to resources to pursue its priorities, to pursue the public purpose. It doesn't pay for spending. It's not there to pay for the spending. It's just used to create room for non-inflationary spending in the economy. And it's important to understand that when taxes are paid, what the government gets back is its own IOUs. So in case of my Franklin's, what I get back when taxes are paid are my own IOUs. And I don't need to save them to pay students next semester. There is no way for me to save them. It's all electronic entries. I just do that all electronically with an Excel spreadsheet. And I don't need to save them. I cannot save them. In fact, because they are my IOUs, there is no way for me to save it. I do another exercise with my students in the classroom. I tell them, take a piece of paper and write, I owe the presenter of this note $20 and sign it. And now put it in your pocket. So your own IOU in your pocket. Are you richer than before? And of course, the answer is no, you're not. Your own IOU in your own pocket is worth nothing. The same way when government IOUs go back to the government, when taxes are paid, they're really worthless. And so there is no way for the government to save its own IOUs. So it's important to understand that money is a tool that the government uses to mobilize resources and to hopefully fully utilize them and to pursue the public purpose, the national priorities that Fidel was talking about, whatever they might be. Now, how does all of this apply to Medicare for All? When you approach it from this mainstream 
taxes pay for spending approach, then you say, of course, obviously the government is going to spend more. So we have to raise taxes to cover that spending. But if you approach it from a real resource perspective, you actually come to completely different conclusions. From the real resource perspective, one issue, which is what Jeff mentioned, was the availability of resources needed to provide healthcare. So doctors, nurses, medical assistants, equipment, drugs, hospital beds, and so on. So all of that is important. And those resources might not be there in the first instance. And so the question then is, how do you create them? How do you ensure that we do have hospital beds and doctors and medical assistants and whatnot? But another issue is, whether with Medicare for all, we're, as a society, we're going to actually need more resources or whether we're going to need less. We will need more specific kind of resources, such as doctors and so on. But overall, the question is whether Medicare for all represents an increase in total spending or it's actually a decrease. And I would argue that it's actually going to decrease the total demand on resources. How? Well, if you look at how much the U.S. spends on healthcare, we spend about 18% of our GDP on healthcare. Um, the next comparable country is Switzerland with about 12%. So they spend 12% of GDP on healthcare. And after that, it's France and Germany, and they spend something like 10 to 11% of their GDP on healthcare. So 18% versus 12 or 11% of GDP. So we are spending a lot more than our peers in Europe, for instance. So you could say, well, maybe that's because we're getting more real stuff. So we get more hospital beds, doctors and nurses and so on. But study after study shows that that's actually not the case. We don't get more real healthcare services. We just pay more for the same amount of services that other peer nations are getting. And of course, the drug prices, that's no secret for anybody that we're paying a lot more for the same drugs here than they're paying in other nations, including European nations. So that's well known. But it's not just about drugs. It's also about compensation in general in the healthcare field, which is much higher, sometimes one and a half to two and a half times higher in the United States than in other comparable nations. So that's another thing that's driving it. So costs in general, prices are higher here, and that's what's driving our increased spending. So we're getting the same amount of real stuff, but we're paying more for it. That's one issue. The other issue is higher administrative costs. And this is where our private insurance system comes into play. So we have this middleman that intermediates between those who seek health care and those who provide health care. And this middleman is, of course, earning money in the process. And that adds to the administrative costs of our healthcare system. And so with a Medicare for all, you would be eliminating this middleman for all practical purposes. You would be eliminating the private insurance industry. So you would be cutting your spending that way. So think of all the people who are employed in the private health insurance system. They would lose their jobs. They would become unemployed. They would lose their income. And we'll come back to this question. So in other words, this would lead to a decrease in spending and not an increase in spending. And there's also the question of hospitals and doctor's offices having all these billing departments because they have to deal with different payers, private insurers and the government and the individuals. And so they're spending a lot of administrative costs there too, that they have to hire these people to get the money for the services rendered. And just to give you an idea, we spend about 8% of our healthcare spending on administrative costs. 
and other nations spend between one and three percent. So they spend between one and three percent of their healthcare costs and administration. We spend about eight percent. So if we can cut the prices, which a single payer system would do, and if we can cut administrative costs, which again a single payer system would do, then we will actually lower how much we're spending on healthcare. So if we conservatively estimate and say we're going to go down from this somewhere in between us and Switzerland, let's say we're going to bring it down to 15% of GDP, which will still be higher than every other nation that's comparable to us. So even if we're spending 15% or 14% of our GDP on healthcare, we would be high up there. But that means that we would be lowering aggregate spending in the economy by about 3 to 4% of GDP. So we're not going to spend more as a society, although the government will be shouldering more of that spending. As a society, we will be spending less. So in a sense, Medicare for all is deflationary rather than inflationary. It's going to release resources on aggregate. So all of those people who will now be unemployed, you can then use them to pursue other priorities, such as greening the economy and whatever else you want to do. That then means that if you want to raise taxes, which is the conclusion you come to from this financial approach, then you are doing the wrong thing because raising taxes is freeing up resources and you raise taxes when you need the additional resources. In this case, we are freeing up resources by implementing Medicare for all. On top of that, you also raise taxes. You're going to do the opposite of what you need to do. So all else equal, you could say that a Medicare for all would lead to the need for a tax cut rather than a tax increase because of the deflationary impact that it has on the economy. So just to give you an idea of this 4% of GDP cut that we could conservatively expect from a Medicare for all, the Biden Build Back Better, the original form, the two plans together, social infrastructure and hard infrastructure bills, together they were a little over $4 trillion over eight years or 10 years, something like that. So that came to about 4% of GDP, more or less, per year for, say, 8 or 10 years. 4% of GDP and an increase in spending. So if you were to lower spending with Medicare for All by 4% of GDP, then you would be adding that additional 4% if you implemented the complete Build Back Better, then you would be offsetting this decrease in spending with an increase in spending. But I'm just mentioning Build Back Better because that was seen as such a huge program of spending that we couldn't afford, that we didn't have the resources to do it. What I'm saying is that if you combine that with something like a Medicare for all, you would actually be finding the resources needed to implement the spending programs. So to sum up, when we look at government spending from this financial pay-for perspective, we can actually come to the wrong conclusions about what needs to be done. And a Medicare for all is a perfect example of that. Financially, we can afford it. The government can pay for it just like it pays for everything else, just like it paid for those stimulus checks that we all got. One day you just woke up and there was more money in your account. Well, how did that happen? Well, it happened because your bank increased the number in your account and the Fed increased the number in your bank's account at the Fed. And that's how all government spending happens. The Fed, Congress, Treasury, they are all involved in this process and there is no financial limit on that. The real issue is resources and whether we have the right kind of resources that are tailored for 
the healthcare system, such as the doctors, the nurses, the hospital beds, and so on. And this is where you might say, well, a comprehensive approach like a Green New Deal is even better because if you include subsidized education there, then you solve your problem to some extent of not having enough medical professionals or not needing to pay them as much because they have all this student debt that they have to pay back. And that's why their salaries have to be higher to compensate for that. So I'll stop right here and I'll be happy to address questions later. I'll just conclude by reiterating the point that money is a tool that we can use to mobilize resources to pursue our national priorities. And that's the right way to think about money. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about how Medicare for all would be deflationary. And I appreciate you breaking that down. I think that the conversation surrounding tax policy with programs like Medicare for all is often a treacherous conversation, to say the least. So, Rohan, if you want to go ahead and fill in any blanks that you see here. Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on a panel with Yeva and Jeff. I think the first thing is just to unpack why it is, I think, beyond just the economics, which Yeva just laid out. The framing around taxpayer money is problematic. I'll get into specifics about Medicare for all in a second. But I think the first thing is just to think about what it is when we say taxpayer dollars, what we are implying here. There's a couple of things. First of all, we're giving the impression that before we can conduct any coherent, rational discussion of an investment program or a spending program, the first thing we need to address, the most important political question is how to find the money, not necessarily how to ensure it's inflation neutral or how to ensure that it's the best place to find the money. But if we cannot identify a single pay for, we actually can't go ahead with the policy. I think this is wrong. There are plenty of policies that we propose and certain questions are not worked out until later, or they're not worked out until after we've got agreement that the general policy is worth doing. Just to give an example, we've had public education systems, universal right to education systems going back to the mid to early 19th century. And the question of what we're actually teaching is an evolving question. It's still up for debate. If somebody said back in the 19th century, I think we should have a universal right to education. And someone said, what does that mean to you? And then they list the specific curricular requirements of any high school in the country right now, they would look at you like you're crazy. But that didn't stop us from being able to have a debate about what a right to education looked like back then, or to say that we should have it and have it to be administered through public institutions funded with public money. And the reason this is important is because what we mean by Medicare for all at the filamental level, at the level of particular people getting particular amounts of healthcare is going to be up for debate. How we administer it, how we provide that service to people is going to be a matter of debate. And we are not saying that we should hold off I'm advocating for Medicare for all until we solve all of those questions in a specific way. We acknowledge that this is an ongoing, iterative, experimental process. Uh, yet when it comes to the financing, the assumption is we need to have one fixed answer for where all this money is going to come from. Otherwise, we can't do anything. And I think what the MMT analysis shows is if you want to pay for something, as Stephanie Kelton says, if you have the votes, it's paid for. Now, does that mean the economic effects are going to be optimal? Maybe not. Maybe you want to be constantly revising, assessing, experimenting with how to best manage the economic effects of that program. But the idea that we cannot go ahead with a commitment, the idea we cannot start enacting Medicare for all until we've resolved every possible eventuality regarding inflation or anything else, I think is just wrong. It's not how we decide whether or not to spend on the military or spend on any other national priority. 
And it shouldn't be when we're talking about something so important as healthcare. The other aspect of the taxpayer narrative is that it's overly narrow in its framing of how demand and sources of spending actually affect inflation. And what I mean by that is that right now, and for most of, for example, US history, but certainly the history of other countries, the default state of being is that the government is running a deficit. It's injecting more money into the economy than it is taking out. That is increasing the net savings of private actors. It's accumulating elsewhere in the world with foreign outflows. And nothing is unsustainable about that net deficit position. But we get confused that the deficit is financed or is accompanied by the issuance of bond sales. And as a result, think that what we're doing when we run a deficit is fundamentally different than creating money and injecting it into the economy. We're not creating money, we're just borrowing, which means it's somehow only using the existing stock or the existing supply of money so it doesn't count. And I think that's wrong. And that's what one of the things that MMT shows is wrong is that whenever you're running a deficit, whether the instruments or the funds that you're spending into the economy end up staying there in the form of reserves or physical currency or more commonly perhaps bonds, the effect is largely the same. Printing yellow money in the form of bonds or printing green money in the form of reserves, as Stephanie Kelton says, doesn't have too much difference. So when we're looking at the question of how to fund something, at least in my opinion, the default presumption should be we just spend the money into existence. And then we can look at whether or not that has effects we want to mitigate. The other thing is to think about the fact that at any point in time, there are all sorts of sources of credit-led demand in the private sector that have an equivalent economic effect to creating and injecting money. Not in every sense. There are ways in which that can be more destabilizing and have distributional effects, but in the sense of generating purchasing power. And the example I use is if somebody goes to a bank and wants to get a loan to fund the development of a new casino, say in Nevada, you're going to have to get bricks and electrical engineering capacity and construction labor and all of those things to make that casino, just as if you got money from the government to build a school or a hospital. We don't look at the source of private credit and put it next to the source of government spending when we hit real resource barriers and say, oh, there's too many bricks being used. Maybe we should have less casino loans so that we can keep the same amount of schools and hospitals. We say, oh, there's inflation. We should be spending less on government spending programs. Meanwhile, all of these sources of private investment stay invisible. They stay invisible to our narrative. They stay invisible to our number crunching that goes on the news and all those kinds of things. Why this is important, I think, is because when we're looking at questions of real resource capacity and what is laying claim on real resources, there's a tendency, even I think for people who've heard the MMT 101 story, to assume that the only place to look is with the public spending side. Whereas in reality, at the point we start coming close to real resource limits, we always and must look at both the private investment and public spending channels in parallel and evaluate where our respective priorities are between what those two systems are doing. And the last thing about the taxpayer money point is just that when we think of money coming exclusively from taxpayers and not from A, the infinity sign in the sky that the government has access to, or B, private credit always being generated out of private relationships in that negative space between creditors and debtors, we center the taxpayer as this dominant social actor 
at the heart of our fiscal system. If we don't have the ability to tax people enough, if we don't have the ability to extract more resource space from taxpayers, then we don't have the ability to do anything. In the sound finance narrative, that's literally money. But even in a crude MMT narrative, that's the idea that the first place that we should be looking to free up real resources is on individual taxpayers. The reason this is a difficult starting point is because oftentimes the very, very rich are not consuming the resources that we might actually need to build core public infrastructure. So if we're talking about freeing up resources through taxation, that might actually mean suppressing the purchasing power, consumption power of those most in need of having that protected, the very poorest people. And we're seeing an example right now with the fact that the COVID response actually helped protect a lot of incomes at the lower end. And as a result, a lot of people had purchasing power that they invested in things like goods that were suffering shortages that we're now seeing price pressure in. And one response to that is, well, we should raise taxes to suppress demand. But raising taxes on Elon Musk and Bill Gates is unlikely to stop the demand for secondhand cars, for example. So if we're really talking about suppressing demand in that context, we're talking about taking money back away from the very people that might be in a position to purchase goods, which really means the people whose incomes we were trying to protect in the first place. So when we center the taxpayer themselves, what we're often doing is centering those with the ability to pay and saying that they are the goose that lays the golden egg that we always have to modulate their ability to pay in order to free up real resources. But in fact, as I just said, in the long run, it's that new expansion of purchasing power. It's the ongoing sources of government deficits. It's the ongoing sources of private credit investment that are not taking from somebody else, but are actually just expanding sweet generous, not out of thin air necessarily, but out of individual relationships. That is the most important long run source of additional demand and purchasing power. And the fight over that, I think, is a much more constructive fight than the fight over pure redistributionist policies, especially when they're likely to hit real people. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube. And follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. Second point is about this idea of real resources. And I think one of the challenges here is when you think of dollars, it's really easy to treat them as fungible. You need more capacity over here. You take it from over there. How do you know you've taken the right amount from over there to increase spending capacity over here? The answer is that the dollars are the same. You need a billion dollars over here. Well, you just tax a billion dollars from over there and then look, the numbers add up. What MMT encourages us to think about is the fact that those numbers are not always equal. And then again, a simple example I use is 
you give a billion dollars to a school lunch program to provide free milk to kids and you take a billion dollars away from Bill Gates, is that likely to have a neutral effect on the price of milk? No, of course not. Bill Gates is not spending a billion dollars on milk in his household. And similarly, the Mississippi lunch program is likely to put all of that money into milk. So the effect on specific prices is likely to be quite different depending on where you send that money. As a result, when we think about real resource capacity, we need to not think of it as a purely fungible, abstract ball of demand or ball of productivity and think about it in terms of specific resources, specific needs. And what that means is if we are looking at real resource constraints in the healthcare sector, for example, we need to have a very targeted set of policies designed to increase that capacity. And I'll just give a couple of examples. The first one, the most obvious one that I spent a lot of time thinking about is intellectual property. We currently have a regime where copyright, patent, and to a lesser extent, trademark and other things play a very large role in the distribution of wealth, income, and power in sectors like healthcare that rely a lot on knowledge and rely a lot on technological advancement for productivity increases. Currently, we have a system where a huge amount of public money, both through universities and through other research investment, goes into private research that then the results of which are allowed to be captured by those actors and turned into intellectual property goods that they can then monetize and charge rents on. Even when the initial investment comes from public money, the National Institutes of Science, National Institute of Health, university grants, all those kinds of things that are using public money end up creating privatized goods. The result is that monetize and commodify a very large part of the knowledge commons in ways that even if we spend, even if you pay, drastically alter the ability of others to build on that knowledge and to grow from it. And to give one basic example from the world that I come from, it will often cost $30, $50, even $100 to access an academic article through one of the publishing houses like Elsevier. Now, the effect of that is most people do not have access to that information. Whether or not most people are going to use it is a different question, but the number of people that might have a brilliant breakthrough or have something to contribute to that conversation that currently don't because they're excluded is very high. Now, one way to fix that would be to give every university and every researcher access to a paid Elsevier account, subsidize it, give everyone a research library access credit. The other option would be to attack the patents, the copyright system that allows Elsevier to charge those prices in the first place. They have very different effects. Just as promoting open patents or an alternative way of conducting pharmaceutical research is very different than letting private actors conduct that research and then trying to buy the products at market prices or at some sort of price that is set within markets, but subject to the government's strong bargaining position as a monopoly buyer or something like that. So what that means is that if we really want to think about real resources here, we need to go beyond just saying we're going to tax demand and free up space to actually look at how we are going to revitalize that ecosystem so that the resources are not being constantly privatized. Another example from where I come from, Australia, we have a public healthcare system there. It's a hybrid system with private healthcare. But even with that public healthcare system, we have been dealing with questions of bottlenecks and shortages, particularly in specialized areas. We're a small country with a relatively small population, even though it's 
quite highly educated and skilled. And a colleague of mine who works with the shadow health minister and talks about this a lot, which is that the access to specialist qualifications is largely restricted on the supply side by the existing specialists in those disciplines. So if you're doing thoracic heart surgery or something, to be accredited as a thoracic heart specialist, you need to do your regular medical training and then go through specialist training and then go through additional specialist training. But then you might have to sit an exam and the passage rate on that exam, the passing level, is set by the board of thoracic surgeons who decide they only want three to five new surgeons a year. Because if there are more than that, then the price of their profession goes down. The value of the services they provide or the ability that they can have to charge higher rates goes down. So you can have free healthcare training. You can have medical school be largely free. You can have a free healthcare system or a public healthcare system and all those things. But as long as you have this bottleneck at the very top of the thoracic surgeon profession, you're going to have an undersupply of that particular service. The same is true for all sorts of other highly specialized areas. And there isn't really a demand-led solution to that. It requires, again, a change of the regulatory regime, a change of the industrial structure, and potentially picking a fight with the very healthcare providers who you're going to need to have on the other side actually providing these services. This isn't an easy challenge to overcome. This isn't an easy political problem to deal with, but it does require us to understand that the problem here is nothing to do with whether we can pay for it but rather the process by which people will take prices and will let people into specific professions. The last point on this is just when we think about price stability itself, the same problem emerges, which is that we can't simply press a button and make more hospitals or make more doctors. It takes time and it takes a reorganization of existing resources, which in the meantime can be destabilizing, can require the disemployment of resources in certain areas before it will show up in other areas. Right now, we don't have perhaps enough people becoming nurses or social workers or other things like that. But one of the reasons for that is because there's a lot of other industries that are attracting people into them, promises of higher incomes and more stable careers and better quality of living and those kinds of things, which as long as they exist will always be there as an alternative to doctors and uh, to nurses and social workers. If you promise to make social work training free and increase the pay available to social workers, that doesn't mean that's instantly going to sort of make it an adequate alternative as long as other industries might be able to, again, outcompete or often even higher wages for the kinds of people that we need to become social workers, nurses. The effect there means that we need to think very carefully about not only making sure the money is there, but making sure the broader social structures, values, culture, and things are there such that people can feel safe and feel accepted and feel successful in becoming part of this new program. And just to give one example of that, then I'll close up. The Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s was responsible for planting millions of trees. It's one of the examples that myself and other MMTers often talk about as a great example of how a job guarantee could help with a Green New Deal or a sustainable transition. But one of the ways it did that was it took a lot of 18 to 21 year olds, often men, people that otherwise might be joining the military or something like that, and had them live in camps very far away from their homes, often 
an equivalent of a long distance, long-term hiking or something like that. They were on the road doing this work, living with others in almost like barracks situations. A lot of people might not want that kind of lifestyle today for various reasons, or if they were going to have that lifestyle, we would have to make sure certain amenities were available to them. The same thing is going to be true when it comes to something like a public healthcare program. If you're looking for, for example, people to go into rural areas or to provide services that might be available 24-7, requiring people to work night shifts that otherwise might want to be connected to their children during the day or connected to broader social services that are only available from a nine to five, those kinds of things. Right now, if you work those kinds of night shifts, then you accept that you might not have access to all of those services and amenities. But if we really want to make them attractive in the future, then we need to be thinking about that broader conception of resource allocation and production beyond simply the direct services we need for provision of healthcare, but rather making universal, permanent, all the time service availability, something that our entire economy and society is geared around. All of which is to say that the question of how to pay for it is a very complicated question, but has much less to do with money than it does to do with social structure and industrial structure. And the quicker we can get away from centering the taxpayer as the goose that holds the golden egg money and more towards the questions of labor and industrial structure that are really going to affect how we provide healthcare. I think we're going to be in a better place. Thanks. Thank you so much, Rohan. Fantastic presentation there. I wanted to actually ask Jeff to tie in what Rohan was talking about first there, the taxpayer rhetoric. And for the audience, can you tie that into the political discussions that we are often stuck in and why old habits die hard? And a lot of people have just been so used to saying taxpayer dollars. Why is that harmful to progressives arguing for policies like Medicare for all? Okay, well, there's two reasons. And Yiva and Rowan, those were amazing talks. Thank you very much. In addition to the taxpayer myth being counterproductive, in, as Rowan was saying, it's not about finding the money. That's not how you organize. You got to organize the resource capacity. You got to realize what the actual constraints are to being able to get what you want. It's material, it's labor, it's technology. If you have these things, you're good. If you don't have these things, can you build them? And part of building them is enticing people to join. This is a huge part of the conversation, but we never get to that conversation because taxpayer dollars, taxpayer dollars, taxpayer dollars. Also, progressives who buy into the taxpayer dollar myth are also knowingly or unknowingly, willingly or unwillingly buying into the racist, classist issue of taxpayer dollars. Taxpayer dollars has been used down through the centuries to mean some people are worthy and other people are not. I pay more in taxes, ergo, I am worth more than you are. I deserve more resource capacity than you do. Even if my tax bracket says I only pay 5% tax, I'm rich, but I paid more monetarily than you do, ergo, I deserve more. When we speak about taxpayer dollars, it's been shown that when we think of taxpayers, we think generally white men. We don't think women. We don't think people of color. It's a very sexist, classist, racist trope that says some people are deserving and other people are not. So in addition to it being functionally counterproductive to everything progressives say that they want, because that's not how federal finance works. If you're talking state-based, sure. But if you're talking federal-based, 
where the policies we need to create rights must originate, then not only are you totally counterproductive, that's not how it works, you are also condemning people who don't look like you to deprivation, misery, and eventual death. It is no joke. It is no hyperbole. We need to abandon the very notion of taxpayer dollars at the federal level because it's not how it works and it's racist as hell and it needs yeah. to stop. I think it's also almost granting home field advantage to yeah. our opponents in these debates because we're operating in their framework that it's this tax to spend, tax to spend. It's almost conceding a point in a sense. I got a question here again from Jonathan Cadman, who's one of our fantastic writers. I'll direct this one at Yeva. He asks, what prescription does MMT have to replace the lost productivity and demand of the millions of jobs that would go away when the insurance industry is eliminated? And why is the federal government more suited to pull it off? I think he might be teasing the job guarantee there, if you could dive in on that. Sure. Of course, there is the job guarantee, which is part and parcel of MMT, has always been. But you could also bring a Green New Deal into this. And I think the comprehensive Green New Deal, the way I think of a Green New Deal, includes greening the economy, it includes Medicare for all, it includes childcare and education and so on and so forth. So Randy Ray and I wrote a paper a few years ago on how to pay for the Green New Deal. And our argument was that this comprehensive approach where you combine different policies is actually a benefit because in this case, you are withdrawing spending with one hand and you're injecting it with the other hand. So yes, you're going to need fewer of those administrative jobs for healthcare, but you're going to need more of them to administer the greening side of the economy. Now, of course, there is the issue of skills mismatch. Somebody who is working in a billing department might not be well suited to build wind turbines. So there is that issue. And that's where the job guarantee comes into the picture. Pick up all of the people, at least temporarily, who are unable to retool and find a job elsewhere in the private sector. But I would say combining it with something like greening the economy where you do require resources and then with Medicare for all, you're going to take away some of that spending. I think that's a good idea. And of course, in the current environment, you could say if we're so worried about inflation, that everybody keeps thinking that the current inflation is a demand side issue, which I actually disagree with. I don't think that's the case. But you could say right now, this inflationary policy could actually be useful. And some people have floated the idea that if we do want to control inflation, at least the inflation that is felt by American people, then controlling healthcare costs would be an important step toward that. And of course, Medicare for all one of the main things that it does is controlling the healthcare costs of Americans. Absolutely. And Rohan, you had mentioned the order of operations of this all, how the policy is constructed in terms of when does the finances come into question? And this may seem a rather naive question, but I'm just curious, what do you think distinguishes the different issues in terms of when we seem to care about the financing right off the bat? On a Green New Deal or Medicare for All, we certainly highlight the financing right off the bat. But when it comes to military spending, things like this, there doesn't seem to be much debate or discussion about that at all. I think it's a question of who gets to set the conversation. There are people who, whenever they want to have spending on things they care about, either just don't talk about pay-fors or they come up with a very glib response and everybody accepts that as acceptable and moves on. And Paul Ryan, one of the tax cuts that got passed early on in the Trump administration, what did they say? They said it pays for itself. 
That was it. That was all they needed to say. It was two sentences and they just moved on. And massive hole in the budget, but don't worry, some point, yada, 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 in the future, it'll pay for itself. Now, the exact same argument can be made by all sorts of deficit spending, that it'll increase growth and that'll increase tax revenues. The deficit will come down on the back end. We're even seeing the deficit come down even now as a result of the spending that happened a year ago. But why is that not an acceptable answer? Because the same people that thought it was an acceptable answer for the things they want to spend don't want to spend on these things. So they just create a double standard. And the problem is everybody else thinks that the right way to fight that is to play within that paradigm. And I understand it. It comes from, I think, decades of hegemony where those people do control the narrative. And if you don't play within that paradigm, you don't get paid attention to, but it's a losing framework. It's a position of weakness from which to argue, and it will always put them in the driver's seat. Why? Because they set the agenda. They set the narrative. If you have an answer to a question or an argument they make, they just come up with another one. Why? Because they're always in the position to change the subject. They have the power to do that. They don't like that you box them into a corner. They don't have to stay in that corner. You don't have any power to keep them there. The only way that we get out of this double standard is to stop starting from whatever the start of the conversation they do and to challenge that. And that means if they say, how are you going to pay for it? You don't start doing the mathematical calculations and find your favorite pay-fors off the, the shelf. You start treating the question with the contempt it deserves and then talking about the things that really matter. But I think the flip side of that is that we do need to have answers to what really matters. here. And one example of this, I think, is we talk about one of the benefits of a public healthcare system is that it reduces healthcare costs on average people. The assumption there is, I think, that if we do this right, people will have more money in their pockets that they have today that is currently going to healthcare spending. Now, does that mean that that's going to be inflationary because that all that money that was currently going to healthcare is being kept in people's pockets, plus there's more money coming from public spending? I don't think so. In part because right now a lot of people fund that by going into debt that the actors on the other side of that debt-based healthcare system are not necessarily spending that money the same way, but also there would be more productive capacity in the rest of the economy if we unleash that spending that's currently being suppressed because it's going towards healthcare spending. But that's a much richer conversation to be having than to constantly be pointing out why this other stuff is wrong. Because even then you're still centering the enemy, if only to be antagonistic towards it. So I think there's a lot of really constructive conversations that people interested in a public healthcare system could be having, especially experts, especially healthcare providers in this kind of summit that go beyond them playing macroeconomist and trying to do the budget envelope calculations and say, look, I've fixed the fiscal ship, as Brookings says, and instead focus on things that they know about because they've been in these industries and saying, hey, we could make it easier to provide this, provide that. If we did this change, how could we fund pharmaceuticals in a different way? How could we encourage people out into rural provided services? How could we change the quality of living for the average nurse so that people really wanted to be a nurse, even when they had options to go to Silicon Valley and all that other stuff and didn't feel like it was a profession that never in a million years would they consider? Those are questions, I think, that if we can keep the conversation there, we'll be much more productive and then we can dismiss these silly paywall mm -hmm. questions because we're talking about a much richer set of problems. Absolutely. And hopefully for the audience after these presentations, it's obvious that there should not be any morality applied to a deficit or a surplus. But Jeff, I'm hoping that you can maybe touch on how do we get through this sense from voters, I think, that advocating to spend more publicly is irresponsible. 
they're operating from their own framework in their lives where in their household, but their deficit spending every month, that probably is inherently irresponsible. Can you just help break through that a little bit? Yeah. The best way that I've gone through this and it can't be done online. I'm off social media. I have been off social media for six months and my mental health has never been better. But when you actually have conversations with people, that's where the change happens. So if you're an introvert, then it's not going to be you. I get that. But write something, write a song, write a poem, write anything. We need more avenues of communication of this information. But when you're having conversations with people, you meet them where they are, understand your audience. There's no point in beating them over the head if that's only going to make them get angry. My overarching philosophy is there are some people who will not wake up if you're shaking them. They will just get angry. And there are some people who won't wake up until you shake them. Know who you're dealing with, know where they are, and give them the information that will either in that moment or in days, weeks, and months to come will eventually get through. And if you're not getting anywhere with one person, don't take it personally, move on to the next. We don't need everyone. We just need enough people. When I say that we need a general strike, I'm very serious that the only way we're going to get the policies that we need is not just from people waking up one day and realizing how we finance it and then pushing for it is going to take the form of disruptive behavior. You're not going to do it at the ballot box. You're not going to do it with a sternly worded letter campaign. You're going to do it with a general strike or something like that, something that will bring people to the negotiating table and give them no other option than to listen to us for the first time in their pathetic lives other than corporations, which is what they do right now. And in that dynamic, we don't need everyone to be disruptive. We don't need everyone to strike. We don't need everyone to take those kinds of risks. But we do need more people to provide cover for these people. These people are going to need homes. They're going to need food. They're going to need logistics. They're going to need lawyers working pro bono. There's going to need to be doctors and nurses who are willing to be street medics. There needs to be truckers who will allow medications to fall off the truck and be discovered. There's going to need to be all manner of things. We don't need everyone doing everything. So the same thing with MMT knowledge. We don't need everyone. So you don't need to convince every person you come into contact with. You just need to convince enough people. So whatever yeah. it is you're doing, just keep doing it. Do more of it. Get better at it. Get better at communicating it watch videos from Rowan and Yiva and myself and Steve Grumbine and Stephanie Kelton and Scott Fulweiler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because each one of these excellent people had a different story to tell. They have a different way of communicating. And the more ways you can say the same thing, that means the same thing, but you're wording it in a different way. One of those ways is going to reach the person you haven't been reaching. I think it's interesting. We talk sometimes at Real Progressives about who got through to us. And it's interesting to me how it's a little bit different for everybody. Yeah. I digested a lot of MMT content and it happened to be a lecture by Randall Ray when it all clicked. I think for everybody, hearing it slightly differently is valuable. You just have those discussions and know who you're talking to. Yeva, you talked a little bit there about inflation. Just because inflation is such a major topic right now, can you break through the oversimplification that inflation is just a result of a demand side issue and overspending? Sure. It's good that you asked because Randy Ray and I just published a paper on the Levy website, and we also had an op-ed in The Hill basically arguing that the Fed is not 
going to solve our inflation problem because all the faith is in the Fed. And this stems from the simplistic idea that the current inflation we see is because of too much demand. This is Larry Summers and Paul Krugman has joined in as well. Story that last round of stimulus checks just pushed us over the limit and we've reached the limit of our economy and that's why we are having this inflation problem. But when you dig a little deeper, you see that it's true that demand has returned to where it was to its pre-pandemic levels and maybe has gone up a little bit. But there are just a few factors that are driving inflation, such as rent and oil and transportation in general. So out of the 7% inflation, something like 3% was just transportation. And it's crazy that we're still talking about oil and we're still talking about OPEC. You think back to the 1970s where we had inflation problem and we were driven by that as well. And had we invested in renewables back then, maybe today we would not be talking about that and we would not be seeing this kind of inflation. So there are still supply chain disruptions, I would say. And in addition to that, there is also the pricing power that Fidel mentioned. Companies taking advantage of the current situation to raise their prices. And they are openly admitting that in their earnings calls where they have to tell the truth to their investors that this is a great time for them. Profits are going up and the pandemic is a cover under which they are able to raise their margins and rack up the profits. That's basically what's happening. Now, you could always argue that had we not given as much relief to American people, we would probably not see as much inflation. So if Americans were poorer, they had less money to spend on those used cars, then there would be less of a price increase of the used cars. You could always make that case. But And some people like Jason Perman were making that case. If we had accepted somewhat slightly higher unemployment rate, then we wouldn't see this kind of inflation. But that somewhat higher unemployment rate is actual people with actual lives who would not have employment, who would not have incomes. And the rest of us could then enjoy a slightly lower price for our Starbucks, even though it's Starbucks that decided twice to raise the prices <laughs> above the increase in their costs and so on. So yes, you could always argue that if we were poorer and there were more unemployed people, then we would have less inflation. That would be using the unemployment rate as a tool to fight inflation, which is the current practice. And our argument is that that's what the Fed would be doing as well if they were to try to raise the rates. Marginal changes to the rates aren't going to really do anything about the inflation we're seeing. And if they want to really solve that problem with rates, they would have to raise them a lot higher. And so basically cause a stagflation and solve the inflation problem that way, which is the only way the Fed is able to solve the inflation problem is by causing a recession and raising the unemployment rate. Yeah, absolutely. This is paraphrasing, but just a few months ago, to underscore your point about corporations basically price gouging, the CEO, I believe it was of Kroger, came out and the way that it was put was they were boasting about how they had passed on the price increases and then some to the customer. And that was how they boasted to their investors. They're very open about this. It's price gouging. When you see record profits, you can't then say inflation is causing our price increase. That doesn't make any sense. I just want to add on that, which is that there's a lot of gaslighting going on right now from orthodox economists about this saying, oh, you're crazy if you think that corporate pricing has anything to do with this. They had the ability to price higher beforehand. What's different about now? And the answer is we provided a large stimulus to people in a way that they put money in their pockets and corporations said, oh, we can charge more and get away with it and absorb that price increase in that feeling that people have of getting more money right now. You get $1,200 that you haven't seen before. 
and you go, oh my gosh, I've actually got money for a change. You go out and buy a new TV and the TV costs $50 more than it did the day before. You might not care because you've finally got the money to buy a TV. Does that mean that that price increase wasn't the result of corporate pricing power? No, of course it's the result of corporate pricing power. But the reason they can do it now is because there's more space to do it than when you're living hand to mouth the day beforehand in a very different environment. As you ever speak, I was reminded of this Chris Rock comedy bit where he says, you know what they say when they're paying you minimum wage? They say, if I could pay you less, I would. I'm legally prohibited from paying you less. But if I could, I would. That's why I'm paying you the minimum. It's literally the least I can get away with paying. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true with these price increases. The reason they're charging more now than they did two years ago is because they can. And they're using the pandemic as an excuse. That's right. That's right. They can get away with it. It's not that they wouldn't have liked to charge more back then, Mm -hmm. but maybe there were social and political and broader economic limits of their ability to do that. Now, you can switch that causality and say, if we didn't give poor people some more money, they wouldn't have been able Mm -hmm. to raise prices. It's therefore the problem is, as you ever said, we don't have enough people staying poor. Or you can say they were waiting for the opportunity to do this. It became available and they did it. It's still their choice. It's still, as Jeff said, their record profits going up. This is one of the reasons why I think when we talk about inflation, we have to remember that inflation is neither good nor bad. Inflation is good for some people, bad for others. Mm. So my question, when it comes to inflation, when we're talking about Medicare for all, Green New Deal, these things, oh, it's going to cause inflation. Well, first, the burden of proof is on you to do that. The burden of proof is on me to design a system where we have actually prepared the resources to be in place so that when these things get implemented, it's not inflationary. But even if it is, I don't necessarily cry over inflation universally. Because if we have four, five, six percent inflation, but at the other end of that, everyone has free education, everyone has housing, everyone has Medicare for all, and we have averted the worst of the climate crisis. I'm not crying over the fact that we got four to five, six, or even 7% inflation as a result of that. Once we've done all these things, then we can tackle inflation a little bit more stringently than maybe we didn't do it well enough. Maybe we did it the best we could, but these things need to get done. I'm not going to say we're not going to save lives because there might be inflation. You can sit down and shut up with an argument like that. I'm trying to save lives. You're trying to pinch pennies. Which one of us is going to win this fight? And when everyone understands that it's about federal finance, we always have the money. It's about resource allocation. Your inflation argument is going to lose to my moral argument backed up with the knowledge about how we get it done. That's excellent stuff. And I know that both Yeva and Rohan touched on this, but there have been some comments with a little bit of confusion about the money story. Could you two maybe just give a very brief explanation of how taxes drive demand for the currency and how the spending must come first? The way that I often try to provide what I call the legal extension to the basic taxes drive money story, which I think is completely correct, is to think about all the other forms of obligation that we incur that through the law or the state enforces. And so you can walk down the street and have no tax bill. You can do everything you can to have stayed out of any system that might incur taxes. And someone can bump into you and they can trip over. And the next thing you know, you get sued and you're getting sued for causing them injury 
or you're driving your car and you think you're participating, you think you're obeying all the road rules and you get into an accident, even though you think you're innocent, you're going to get sued and there's no way you're going to get out of paying some money, whether that's your attorney's fees or court fees, even just to prove that you don't owe any more. You could buy a piece of property and you're going to have to pay property taxes, but you could also have somebody step onto your land and get injured and sue you. And there's all these ways, whether it's contracts or torts or property laws or any other kind of way in which we inhabit society, where even if we think we've got a zero quote unquote tax burden, we are still likely facing a risk that we are going to have to pay dollars to somebody and that the law, the state is going to enforce those obligations in yeah. dollars or in whatever the currency of account is. So you can't get away from debt that is enforced by the state. You can't get away from it either in a guaranteed sense or in a risk probability sense. This idea that even if there isn't a hundred percent guarantee, you're going to have to pay money. There's a risk every day that you could need money. How many of us want to walk around life with $200 in an account going, oh, I'm accounted for any possible risk in the future. Very few. The risk that anything could happen in your entire life could be completely upended if you don't have enough money to pay those debts or to pay to alleviate risk is very huge. And that to me is, I think, the bigger framework here is that even if we can imagine a world where we have a zero tax burden, we are not out of the realm of jurisdiction of the sovereign or of the legal system that imposes legal obligations onto us. Even the threat of an obligation is itself enough to drive, in some sense, demand for a currency. And the important thing there is that that threat comes from private activity. If you want markets, if you want property rights, if you want contracts, if you want a system of liability for people who punch you in the face when you're walking down the street, if you want all of those things beyond just a state up there taxing and redistributing or paying money or whatever it is, if you want the system of private enterprise, private activity that we have, private liability, that itself is part of that same public system that imposes taxes. It's part of that same circuit. Even if the money we're paying goes from me to another private actor, the fact that the state is in the middle, forcing me to pay that person in a certain unit, that is functionally the same as a tax obligation in the sense that it drives demand for our dollars. It's the, coercion. It's either dollars or incarceration. Wonderful choice. Yeah. yeah. Well, we do have to finish things up here, but if the audience takes anything from this, please do understand that the debt and deficit fear-mongering is incoherent and not rooted in economic reality. And with Yeva's example there, what's important is that she has to give out those Franklins before she can collect them, and the students have no desire to acquire the Franklins until she's imposed an obligation in the form of, in this case, a tax. So I really want everyone to understand the order of operations and the money story and encourage everybody to read The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. That's an excellent primer into modern monetary theory if you are not familiar with the concept. So thank you all so much for taking the time. I think this was an excellent panel. I really appreciate you all being here to describe the financing of Medicare for All. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive.